We're back in our beginning verses in the book of Romans. Paul has introduced himself. He's declared his commitment to the gospel that comes to us from God. He calls it the gospel of God. And now he tells us that this gospel is all about or concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The gospel is all about Jesus. Welcome to the Bread of Life. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, the director of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bible teacher at the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. To learn more about our work to make Christ known among the nations, go to traincpe.org. Or to discover more about our radio ministry and our fellowship in Boise, go to breadoflifeboise.org. We're looking at Romans chapter 1, verse 3. There, Jesus is identified as His Son, God's Son. And we take time to note that this designation of our Savior must be understood in its broadest and highest sense. Here's a hint. After first identifying the gospel as the gospel of God, from here on out, Paul will call it the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we said last week, to understand the idea of good news, you have to understand it not simply as a concept that it's news that's positive, but that it has a impact upon your emotional state. That when you hear it and you comprehend it as good news, it fills you with gladness and relief and with joy. And we looked at a bit of the etymology of the word. We said that the word represented the idea of a city-state that was under attack by another city-state. And the citizens of that city-state send out their army to meet on the field of battle, the advancing army that's coming against them. And everything is up to whether their army will succeed and defeat the advancing army against them. If their army loses, then they lose everything. They lose their property, they lose their freedom, they very well could lose their lives. If the army wins, then they're secure and they're safe and the battle is fought and their army prevails. And their army sends back a runner to come into the city to announce that the battle has been fought on their behalf and has been won and they're free. And that runner is an evangelist in a sense, according to the language. He is an uangelos. And the message that he proclaims that the battle has been won, that has been fought on their behalf, and they're free, is the uangelion. It's the message of evangelism. It's the gospel message that's proclaimed to them. And when they receive that message, you can only imagine that it's not just news that's positive. It's very, 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 very good news. It strikes them with joy and gladness and relief. What we said last week is, if there is a message that's brought to you that purports to be the good news, and having comprehended it and understood it, it doesn't produce in you that kind of gladness and that kind of relief and that kind of joy, it's because it's not the good news. It's not the gospel of God. The other thing we said is when you have an individual and you proclaim to them the gospel of God as it's set forward in God's word and they don't experience that joy and that sense of relief in hearing it, then they haven't comprehended it. They haven't understood it. You can tell when the spirit of God opens the heart of an individual to receive and believe and understand this gospel because they're overwhelmed with relief and joy and gladness. They collapse in Tears of joy and gratitude at the knowledge and the understanding of those things. One of the wonderful experiences I've had, one of the habits I have oftentimes is to get with individuals and have them tell me the story of their conversion and what led up to it and what was happening in their life and the moment at which they came and realized what Christ had done for them and 
They embrace by faith the reality of his saving work on their behalf. As they tell the story, their, their story is full of this emotional punch. When that moment is realized and gathered in, and that's the gospel. And it's good news to God because God delights in saving us. And so now Paul adds to this idea that he is set apart for the gospel of God, and he adds to this good news, this information to us. This good news is concerning his son. The word there in the Greek basically means all about, encircling the son. And with this statement, Paul opens up all of scripture to us. He tells us now that what he is about to write, what Peter writes, what James writes, what Jude writes, what John and Mark and Matthew and Luke write, is all about a delineation of the good news of God regarding or concerning or about Jesus Christ. Everything they say, everything they communicate is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in pointing out this, tells us and makes this point that the world religions can go along quite well in their tenets. Once the tenets are out there, once you understand what they decree to be, the faith that are the ideas or the truths that men ought to embrace, once they're understood, they can all get along quite well without their founders. Buddhism can get along fine without the Buddha, and Confucianism can get along fine without Confucius, and Mohammedism can sustain itself without Muhammad. It actually can in what it teaches. But Christianity is nothing without Christ. Nothing without Christ. It has no ruling principle to assert, but that which rises out of the gospel, and there is no gospel without Jesus Christ. The gospel is all about him and his saving work on our behalf. Paul is actually, in a sense, by giving this introduction, he's directing the attention of those he's writing to, the Romans, to what it is he's going to write to them because he's going to declare to them, and this whole book basically is going to be this delineation and this pronouncement of this good news and how it will impact their life and how it's to be lived out in obedient faith by them. And, and he's telling them it's all about Jesus. But in verse 2, Paul is also letting them know that this gospel is ultimately all about everything that was written in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures. The prophetic word of those Scriptures, the way they were pronounced, all that is to be understood and gathered by them, the whole weight of them bearing in upon that present hour and the present moment, all of them are about Jesus Christ. And that would have been understood by those who were reading this you would begin to understand why it is that the Jews of this time were not particularly happy with the early church, this new Christian offshoot that has taken off from their faith. Because all of their traditions and all of their teachings and all of their customs of sacrifice and temple worship and all of their sacred prophecies and promises for their nation and for the future of the world, all of its anticipation for their Messiah and all of its wisdom and all the spiritual benefit that they think they draw from these holy scriptures to their mind is being hijacked by Paul and the apostles being channeled with a focus upon one person, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, you can imagine that they were quite resentful and jealous of such a notion, and when they recognize that still today, still are jealous and resentful of such a notion. And to this, we Christians plead guilty. We lay claim not only to the New Testament, but to all the writings of the Old Testament we treasure these as the scriptural accounts of God's preparing history, 
directing all people into his salvation, into his good news, and that good news is all about Jesus Christ. Now Paul is going to identify and give us somewhat of the stages in the revelation of Jesus Christ and following the stages of the revelation of Jesus Christ, how in a sense they impact us in the gospel. And oddly enough, if you look at this, you can see that these stages are represented in the whole book and the order of the book of Romans. We won't go into that, but maybe we will in the future. These stages are kind of introduced by these very names that the Lord Jesus referred to. First, he says, concerning his son, there's a name. His son. And then the next phrase is after he basically gives an expression of the fact that he's born out of the seed of David as to his human birth, we can apply to that Jesus Christ, the name Jesus Christ. Jesus, by the way, wasn't always known as Jesus. He was eternally the son, but he wasn't eternally Jesus. That was the human name that was given to him at his birth. And he came to earth to be the anointed one, the Messiah to enter into and carry out a historical reality. And so this phrase, of the lineage of David, we might attach to that the name Jesus Christ. And then when he speaks of his resurrection and his exaltation, we can attach to this, our Lord, our Lord. Those names align with the thought progression that Paul is going to have in what he's going to say here and reveal to us. And so for us to appreciate what Paul is saying in this passage, and particularly in verses 3 and 4, We have to kind of retrace these words in an almost chronological sequence of revelation. We have to see that each step sets light upon who Jesus was, is, and has become, and will forever be, and our engagement or our experience of him along that progression. So here's the first thing I simply want us to see here in this phrase concerning his son, his son. And it's this, we start with the eternal son. We start with the second person of the Trinity. There is in the Old Testament a sense in which God called the various kings that were anointed over Israel the Son of God or His Son. And there's a measure in which we can understand it that way. But when Paul is writing here and he's introducing this phrase for the first time, he's bringing to the Romans, he's writing to the broadest, most expansive idea of what is behind this phrase, His Son. And in this, he's speaking of Jesus as that eternal second person of the Trinity. He will be born of the seed of David. He will be magnified as the Son of God in power at the resurrection. But before all of this took place, he existed eternally with the Father and the Spirit as the Son of God. And that's what Paul is referring to here. Paul is only bringing forward what the Lord Jesus himself has expressed of his own pre-existence before he became Jesus of Nazareth. Take your Bibles to John chapter 17. Let's look at what is called the high priestly prayer that the Lord Jesus prayed before he was betrayed and went to the cross for us. John 17, I'm just going to read you verses 1 through 5. You will see here that there is a full comprehension on the part of the Lord Jesus that he pre-existed one with God throughout all eternity. The Lord Jesus spoke these words lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work that you have given me to do. And now, O Father, Glorify me together with yourself with the glory 
which I had with you before the world was. In John chapter 14, just prior to this, Philip will say in verses 8 and 10, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us after all that he had seen from the life of the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus responds to Philip and says to him, Have I been with you so long and yet you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? It's interesting that the disciples had a hard time comprehending that all through this time, Christ was granting or equating himself as one with the Father, equal with the eternal God. But the Jews understood that, and they began to understand that early on. There was that occasion in which they confronted the Lord Jesus because he healed an individual on the Sabbath, and they were confronting him. And the Lord Jesus said, listen, I'm only doing what my Father does. My Father works, and I work. You find it in John chapter 15, verses 17 and 18. Listen to these words. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. In other words, all the activity of God, all the divine activity of God, I've been engaged in that activity from the beginning. All the time in which God has been at work, I have been at work, he says. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also he said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So when Paul writes concerning his son, again, Paul is giving to the Romans the highest and broadest understanding of who Jesus of Nazareth is. This has been the Bread of Life, a ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bread of Life Church in Boise, Idaho. To learn more, go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may God bless you.